If you can stop talking for 10 seconds, that would be fantastic. You want to hit the start timer on there? You want to hit... You want to start podcasting, genius? If you're a married woman, you walk in the living room, there's your beloved husband. He's on the sofa, slumped over, <laughs> staring off into space, a little bit of drool coming out. He didn't have a stroke. He's a happy guy. <laughs> let him be. But you don't let him be. Because you know, you're doing all your stuff. Then finally you come up with something you don't have time to do. So you put it on a list. You don't do the list, you just write the list. We don't want to do the list, but we want to live in the house. I hate that list. I do, I hate that. I'd rather get lap dishes at the senior center than do that list. Don't get any ideas, guys, it's not an option. I am not welcome back. Hello, and welcome to Carnival Personnel Sideshow. I'm Jacques. I'm Joe. And I'm just absolutely super, super jacked. We have a comedian that my sister gave me the heads up on a while ago. She had seen him at, at different shows around New England. My, my sister is a huge comedy, especially a stand-up aficionado. And she's like, you are going to absolutely love this guy. Um, when she told me that we were living on the other side of the world when we moved back 2016 2017 um, not only did my sister gift me um, this guy's book which we will talk about uh, that from the very first couple pages is absolutely hilarious but i've got to see him a couple times since then uh joe and i just could not be more jacked up to have a New England comic, uh, Steve Bork, on the on the podcast today. Steve, thank you so much, man. First of all, you need to lower your expectations um, <laughs> and your voice. You're coming oh, in a little hot. Yeah. Coming a little hot. Use your and just voice. just for the record, not to be a stickler, but it's Bjork. Bjork, like the like the singer. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You gave um, up the same vibe, by the way. You you have that yeah. same eclectic. You walk, you know. I've got a swan in the closet. So you're not related to Ray Ray Bjork, who played. Uh, that, that's no. Bork. That's oh, okay. Bork. That's that. See, I was all screwed up myself. <laughs> but you are from that planet uh, where Robin Williams' character came from, Mork, right? Yeah. No, he's Mork. He came from Orc. Ah, see, and see you're a dork. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get on with it. Well, thank you for tuning in, everybody. This has been Carnival Personnel Sideshow. Uh, so seriously, Steve, I don't even know where to start. I've been laboring when I when I when I when I edit the podcast. You know, I try to come up with clever, funny names, and I before we've had this conversation, I've debated, do I call this episode manuals, manuals, manuals? Uh, <laughs> do I call this episode? Cause this one really hits home. There's woods in Lowell, like, <laughs> because uh, that's the punchline to one of your jokes that I thought was hysterical 
and then I moved to Lowell and I actually get that all the time because we bought a place in 2017. It was last second. The clock had expired and we had to take, you know, what, what, what we had found in the 19th hour, not the ninth hour. And the two things that we told the real estate lady over this year process of trying to find someplace, because um, we had to take care of my mom-in-law, we don't want a pool and we don't want a yard. Like literally no yard and no pool. We have an in-ground pool and two and a half acres. And, it, and when people like, wait. Two and a half acres in Lowell? Right. That is that is exactly the reaction that we get. Uh, it's, it's, it's 90% unusable land because there's a stream that goes behind uh, – the developer sold the property in 81 thinking they were going to put 15 houses in a coulter sack and they were able to put three. Um, but we're right paying off the right people then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But your bit that we may, may not get into. And so I've labored over it. Uh, let's, let's start right at the top. Um, Steve, how start here? I have okay. to, the name of your podcast, carnival personnel. Is that a reference to the jerk? Okay. What? Steve, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> My lawyers have instructed me to say that I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's, because that's, that's fantastic. Because <laughs> I think the jerk, the jerk is absolutely my top five comedies of all time, and it seems to be so forgotten by so my, many people. And my Twitter handle is Opti Grabber. Perfect. So, <laughs> yeah. I have a thing uh, for the jerk myself. Joe, Joe and I, Joe and I met in like 94, 95. We did a sketch comedy show for years that kind of what led me getting out to LA. And one of the things we first bonded on is that, and my dad, I didn't really have a dad growing up. I saw him once a year, Steve, and he had no idea what to do with me and my brother when we came to visit. So we just went to movies. I saw that a couple times at the theater with my dad, the one week in Buffalo when I was 10. And that has been my favorite, mine and Joe's favorite movie. You know, um, I think Joe one year gifted me when DVDs became a thing, the 26th anniversary episode, because <laughs> they missed, it. you have it. Okay. <laughs> you know? And then that, that, that didn't have all the deleted scenes with uh, when he's on the, uh, what is the, 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 the carnival ride that spins Earth, around. Right? Oh, the, no, the, oh, the, where he's fused onto the uh, oh, yeah because he's depressed he breaks up with the girl and anyways i can't tell you steve how many times joe and i will be hanging out watching something stupid or just whatever and, and he'll just look at me and go cat juggling you know just <laughs> a, a, so when we started the podcast he came Father, up with the you name. seem like a religious man <laughs> but yes no thank you for see I, I i knew we would love you even more because you got that reference uh thank you for getting that now when did you uh when did you start getting into comedy how how and how did how did you go from i'm not a stand-up comic to i'm a stand-up comic so the problem was i thought i was a stand-up comic long before i was um i actually <laughs> so i'll give you i'll give you the whole thing so when I was seven years old, I was homesick from school with asthma. Uh, and uh, my mother bought a Bill Cosby album. Oh. And this is before we knew he, what a monster he was. And I was listening to this. I was cracking up. And I was like, what does this guy do for work? And she's like, this is it. And I said, well, that's for me. No heavy lifting. That's what I want to do. So from the age of seven, that was my sole focus. That's all I wanted to do. Um, but I come from a very conservative household. Um 
not not necessarily politically, but you know, financially and so forth. So um, I went to college, and while I was in college, I got a job at a comedy club called Stevie D's Comedy Tonight. It was in Middleton, Massachusetts. This is in '87, um, right right in the middle of the boom. And I worked there as a doorman, checking IDs and bouncing and so forth. Uh, but what I did was I used that to watch all the the com comics on stage. Uh, and I mean, all the Boston legends, um, you know, Mike Donovan, who we talked about a couple minutes ago, Mike Donovan, um, you know, Kevin Knox, uh, Paul D'Angelo, all these amazing comedians. And my dream was at one point to do it. So in 88, I got uh, a spot at the original Stitches, Stitches Comedy Club on Com Ave in Boston. I went and I just uh, told a friend of mine who went to BU that I was going to be there. So he showed up with about four or five of his friends. And back then, open mic was a different, very different animal than it is now. People came out. The crowd it was always filled. Like if you went to Stitches on a Sunday or Nick's on a Monday, um, it was open mic night and it was a full house every time. It was a great way to start. But anyway, so 88, I go, go on stage. I do my five minutes. Um, it went okay. But... I thought from watching these professionals, I just assumed that you either went up on stage and killed and became a comedian, or it just wasn't for you. And I was devastated because I thought that, you know, because I wasn't, I didn't crush my first time on stage. I thought that was it. I was done. So it took, uh, it took three years before I had the, the guts to go back up and do it. Um, maybe not three, but it was, so it was in, early 1990 that I that I learned enough people told me you can't expect to come out and, and just hit a home run right off the bat you got to learn you got to grow you got to find your voice you got to learn who you are and so forth and so on so 1990 is when I started um, really doing it you know week after week and um, and so that's that's how I started yeah see that's interesting because some comics their stories are like you know, I got up on my first open mic and I killed and then I went up two or three more times and I bombed and then I bombed for like three more years. You know, that's well, so. Of thing. Yeah, I can explain that because I've seen that a hundred times. Here's what happens. I didn't pack the room. People, when it's their first time on stage, all their friends are excited. So they pack the room. So it's an audience that is just can't wait to hear you do your stuff. So, you know, they kill. Yeah. And then, you know, the friends aren't coming the second, third, fourth week and so forth. So you're, you're going up in front of an audience that is, you know, not necessarily rooting against you, but they're not giving you the benefit of the doubt either. Yep. Makes sense. Jacques, we need to pack the podcast. That, that's you know. apparently, <laughs> apparently that's bad. That's been a mistake. Um, I love and hate that you reference the Cosby albums because, um, you know, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm six is when my dad decides, ah, I don't want to live here in Wilmington with my wife and three kids. I'm moving to Buffalo. And uh, he didn't that have like one. a good choice. Yeah, you know what? Sure. I mean, he wanted to get out so bad he was willing to go to, to, Buffalo, go to Buffalo, you know. Uh, but of the things he left behind, you know, uh, all his comedy albums. And I hate that I have not listened to Why Is There Air and maybe... 30 years, the Bill Cosby album. I think 
I could probably quote it pretty close to verbatim because that's all I listened to with those albums. And it was just, and that's when I'm like, this is a thing. This is making people laugh is a thing. And, and that's, that's where I first got hooked. Yeah. I had all the Crosby albums and, you know, it is just such a tragedy that he ended up being the person he was because that was such a big part of my childhood. And um, a lot of people, by the way, ask, I, I work, I work very clean. And a lot of people ask why, and by the way, just cause I work clean doesn't mean I roofie people. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't have a darkness. I just work clean for this reason. I was listening to all the Cosby albums. Then when I was about 12, Eddie Murphy came out with an album and my mother bought that album thinking it was the guy from Saturday night live. It was not. So as a family, we sat in the living room when I was 12 years old and listened to Eddie Murphy on the album. And to their credit, my parents tried to pretend like it wasn't bothering them. Um, <laughs> I was trying to pretend like I wasn't getting the jokes. And, <laughs> and it was the most one, probably to this day, one of the most uncomfortable situations I've ever been in. And that was when I decided, you know what, I'm going to work clean just for the simple fact that I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable being together, hearing it. Um, I have, I don't have any, I love, by the way, Eddie Murphy was hysterical. Uh, I'm a big fan of filthy comedy. If it's done well and clever, Yeah, I'm not a prude. It's just not my brand. You know, there's, um, <laughs> I, I don't know how many times just in the back of my mind, your wife's a Bigfoot, Gus. Just, just play, <laughs> just randomly things from that album, and it's funny. Again, I, around that time, you know, I, I have a sister. She, you know, we're Irish twins, and we it was our one week in Buffalo. Somehow, she got my dad to take her to the odd, the, the building the the Sabers play when he did the tour. So this is eighty three, eighty four. So she's fifteen. And um, and to my dad's credit, he didn't leave. But the same thing, he thought he was taking my sister to see that funny guy from Saturday Night Live. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but my sister, again, she got, you know, she introduced me to you. She brought Brian Regan to my world. And Brian she, Regan is absolutely one of the best in the business. Well, the thing with him is my niece at the time, I remember coming back to visit 11 12 she was a very shy girl very shy um she would put on a show in the living room which it was so amazing because it was one of those things she could come out of her shell because she was being somebody else and she would do that quintessential routine where he comes out and you know it's like uh uh the sign says road closed shouldn't that read uh, no, that sign says blasting area. Shouldn't that read Roku? And she would have his inflections because she could take her 12-year-old daughter to see right. him. And I remember listening to – I'm trying to think the comedian. I, I was listening to him on K-Rock, and he was talking that the night before he had just driven like an hour and a half somewhere to see Brian Regan. And they were like, wait a minute. Uh, and what is the comedian's name? He had that show Action where he was the agent. I, I, Jay Moore? I, Jay Moore, thank you. And, oh, yeah. and and he's talking and they're like, wait a minute, you're on tour. You had a day off and you drove to see another comedian. And it always 
stuck with me. He said, if you go to a Brian Regan show, if he's out at the Impro, uh, the um, Irvine, because he doesn't like to do L.A. very much, the very back of the room that's not lit, that, you know, you will see five or six national headliners who just came to see Brian Regan and they pay to come see him. They don't do the guest list. They come in just to see him. And these are guys who are like, and he's like, yeah, you'll see like, you know, any, again, a, a, a comic who didn't work clean. He'll talk about how many times he would see Bob Saget, you know, another guy that people mistakenly took their kids to see, thinking, sure. you know, but here's Bob Saget driving to see here's Jay Moore driving to see. And, uh, and no, that's something that, you know, uh, again, that with your comedy that, it really resonates with me because it's so family observational. You you had a really absolute wonderful and and just almost too hard to believe curveball thrown at you years ago that you spun into one of my favorite stand up routines mm-hmm. uh, uh, about about the uh, your children, which, which I absolutely love. Has your has your process changed over the years to writing comedy? I mean, when you were. When you did that show in 87, first of all, do you remember any jokes from your first couple sets? No. Okay. That's a yes, but we won't repeat. (laughs) No, no, no. I really, I honestly don't. I remember the first really good joke I wrote. um, And it's the closest I come to being dirty. Um, And I'll tell tell you this, the joke, because I actually, as a homage, I still, a lot of times, I'll actually close the show with it. But... uh, and it, but it can only it only works in New England because it's about a New England thing. Uh, steam clams. Um, I say I don't I don't I don't like steam clams. Um, they're just slimy and jelly, and I'd rather I'd rather eat the shells. Um, but you, here's the clincher for me. You know that thing they call a neck. I'm not convinced. That's a neck. Um, I mean, think about it. you already have to, it's already wearing that condom thing. You got to take that off and it goes on a little bit. And that is the first really good joke I wrote and it goes away for a couple of years and then I'll remember it and I'll kind of bring it back. Um, but I still, and I still, in fact, I'll tell you a quick little story about that. I was doing a show um, for BC high school, which is a private Catholic high school. Um, and this was a mother's and son's night oh. that they did every year. And um, I was booked because I work clean. Um, so I grabbed the two mothers who were running the show. I said, look, here's the only thing that comes to this kind of risque. I said, uh, and I give them the clam joke. And they go, nope, that's fine. That's funny. Because I don't, it's not like I say anything. It's all, it's implied. And anyway, um, so I go up on stage now. The host of the show is a guy named Jimmy Smith. Terrific guy. He's now deceased, but he's a uh, he's a, a black guy. You need to know that for the sake of the story. All right. So he's out there. He brings me up. I do my thing. I finish with the clam joke. He goes back on stage. I'm walking off the stage and there's this priest. Very old, very angry. And he gets right in my face. And he's obviously talking about the clam joke. And he goes, when we booked this show, we were told that nobody would be off color. And I turned around and I looked at my friend, Jimmy, and I looked back at the priest and I go, hey, he's a friend of mine. And then I walked away. <laughs> <laughs> and I oh, thought, you know I what? I love the, that. 
I said, you know what? The comedy connection is never going to hire me again, but he thought it was hysterical. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> let, let's, I don't know if this is a new England question, but it might be a new England question. Um, you got to pick one. You can only pick one, uh, uh, Steve, the Elks or Knights of Columbus. Where are, you know, for the, you know, you know, are, are there Knights of Columbus and Elks lodges outside of, I know every place has their water Buffalo lodges, but here it's those two. Those two are, are absolutely prevalent. And I got to tell you, they're so interchangeable when I'm going to one or the other, I don't even know what I'm walking into. Uh, <laughs> it just, if they, if there's a, like a, 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 if there's an animal head with antlers, then I know it's not a Knights of Columbus. <laughs> Cause I did, I saw my sister and I saw you at a Wilmington band fundraiser at the Tootsbury oh, sure. Elks. And then uh, I, it was either Woburn or Burlington and I don't know if that was enough I mean you know it's it's funny because you know my wife always this every big family function that we have you know grandma's 80th birth it's always at like one of those places and it's just so quintessential New England that everybody knows like the, the, those blue collar you know places where I think the south has different types of clubs <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah uh, and their dress code is different. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, so you've been doing this for a while, um, and and you've done again. We're, we'll talk about it in a second. Like you know, Bork, you've done some acting stuff. Do you do you have at this point in time? Do you have a one, two, five year plan? I mean, as your kids are growing <laughs> older, as your kids are growing old, I'm because you know there's got to be limitations when you had four kids that you know you had to you know, help get ready for school in the morning. And I know how laborious it is because I've heard you explain it, which is that that is my favorite bit going from the four corners of the stage one by one. I have two kids. I can relate to it and I cannot imagine doubling it. But uh, but I guess as they're getting older, are you able to do more stuff out of New England or do you have a plan like, yeah, I can I couldn't do this because of these responsibilities, but I can foray into that. Or is it just where, where you are now? This is a really good living. I'm booked all the time. I'm great with what I'm doing. So let me, I'm going to answer that in a roundabout way. Um, first of all, I will just say this. I am not just a, not to just have four kids, but I'm a single dad with four kids. Right. Um, and I'm very, I'm very involved. I know all of their names. Um, <laughs> round about their ages um, so that has since we, I took on this responsibility of these children um, and especially with the breakup of my marriage I don't have the ability to go out and do corporate gigs uh, for you know two or three days I don't have the ability like I used to go down to uh, uh, the Borgata in Atlantic City and that's a seven day gig you know, I, I can't do those anymore, which is uh, unfortunate. But, you know, the, so here's the roundabout way I'm answering this. I made a lot of decisions that have really uh, hampered, hampered my career. Now, I'm not saying that I'm so talented and so magnetic that I would have been a big star, but I never really gave it a chance because of the choices that I, that I made. Like, for instance, I moved to LA for like, a minute because um, while I was out there, I missed at the time my girlfriend. I and 
And I'd actually run into this guy at the improv. While I was at the improv, I was sitting at the bar and was talking, struck up a conversation with this guy. And he was a comic. He's been a comic since the 80s. And I go, oh, you're going up tonight? He's like, oh, no, they don't let me up here anymore. And I kind of left that. And then on the way home with my buddy, we were talking. He's, and I said, do you know this guy? He's, oh, yeah. He was huge. He had so much heat. And now, um, now nobody, nobody will touch him. Nobody lets him get on stage. Um, he just, you know, keeps hanging out and he's just, you know, people aren't, they don't think he's got it anymore or he didn't, he just doesn't have it. And that was a really powerful night that I'll never forget because I figured, you know what, look, I can go home and get married and do comedy in Boston and have everything, or I can stay in LA and chase it and chase it and chase it until nobody wants to use me. And then I'm all by myself and I have nothing. And if I, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I, what I'm saying is if you've got a dream, you really should absolutely chase it. And I just, at that point, I didn't have the, the temerity to chase it. I just decided to go home and have what I thought was going to be everything. Now, the funny thing is about three weeks after I got home and I got like a, a day job, I decided I should have a day job and be a responsible person in addition to comedy. And uh, my fiance at the time, she calls me at work. She goes, I just got a call from a casting agent in LA. Um, they want you to call her. I go, okay, what's the number? So I call her and she goes, now you have to know, you have to be familiar with the fact that they did a live action Flintstones starring John Goodman. You guys are aware of that? Well, oh, yeah. well. Right, saw so, it in the theater. I think, right, Joe, so, I think Joe saw the sequel first. And well, then he all, right, so, all right. So the casting agent says to me, all right, we're doing a prequel to the Flintstones. Um, I've heard that you look like a John, uh, young John Goodman and that you're funny. Uh, we'd like you to come out and audition. And I said, well, I appreciate that. Uh, thank you, but uh, I'm not chasing that anymore. I'm not really interested. And she goes, are you sure? Because I've heard some good things about you. I'd really like to see you read for this part. And I said, no, no, I, but I appreciate it. So three days go by, she calls me again. And she goes, look, I keep hearing your name. I've seen your headshot. Um, I've seen the tape. Um, I, I, what if we move this audition to New York? Would you do it then? And I said, um, no, no, but thank you. And she's like, I really think you're making a mistake. I go, yeah, I probably am, but thank you. So that was that cut to, they make the prequel. It stars, uh, oh, what's the guy's name? Mark, Mark Addy. Addy. Mark yeah. Addy, who went on to uh, a sitcom where he was married to Jamie Gertz and then became King Baratheon in the Game of Thrones. So hypothetically speaking, <laughs> I could have been TV married to Jamie Gertz and been King Baratheon of Game of Thrones. But I think he was also in the full Monty, and I don't think he wanted any of that exposure. <laughs> yeah, that was, you, you noticed, you noticed I didn't mention that. <laughs> Thank you, Joe, for, for now, and at the same time, and if you do that, you don't have the, the kids that you have. You're not here for that. And it's the same thing, you know, it, it's like I, I had a really successful company, um, a post-production company uh, in Santa Monica, and, you know, when, when my current wife, um, you know, got pregnant with our first kid. I'm like, yeah, this is it. Like, I I, I became a stay-at-home dad. I still, I, I, I work relentlessly, you know, but I don't punch a clock anywhere. I'm not gone. If I, if I, I've done a bunch of military stuff where 
and it's scheduled six months out, uh, you know, I can move the pieces around. Even when we were in Los Angeles, we would bring my mom-in-law out or something like that. Uh, we had friends who could like help out, but you know, doing the full-time dad thing is something that, and at the end of the day, it's like, you know, is you're not going to regret any of this time. And, and, um, now that I'm trying to do, you know, this, this again, full time, not, not full time, but I'm going out three, four nights a week. And just this past Thursday, uh, I have a friend who has a great mic and, um, and Worcester on Wednesdays and we did a mic together on Tuesday and I helped round up a bunch of people to go from Lowell to do his Worcester. I'm like, Hey, Ian's mic is great. The, the restaurant is fantastic. Uh, the stage is great. We're going to go do his mic tomorrow. And four o'clock, you know, Wednesday rolls around. My son just joined a soccer team, was never into sports, became highly addicted to soccer the last two weeks of the World Cup. He's not very good. He just started, but it's his thing. He's ADHD and he cannot watch a commercial without pausing it twice or he's hyper-focused. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and the practice was 530 to 6 is what it said on the app. I drive him and his buddy there. They wrapped up practice around eight o'clock at night and him and his buddy were the last two to get off the field. And it's a 45 minute hike back to Lowell in the wrong direction. And I had a text a guy saying, you know, you guys are going to kill it. This is going to be great. And yeah, there was that part of me that's like, I'm sitting home and I'm seeing on Instagram, them posting and, and, and what I, it was so much fun. And I'm liking, yeah, I missed out on that, but he loves soccer and right. you know and this is his new thing and i went to new york a couple months ago and i bought him a um a ronaldo manchester united jersey that he slept in now that he's on this little team he's sleeping in his either practice or game jersey where we have to peel it off him while he's sleeping to wash and i'm like you know what yeah i missed a mic but i'll see these guys next week but this is his thing. And so you don't regret that kind of stuff, no. you know, and, and you're in new England where, again, I see you on Instagram. Um, I, I, or not even you. It's like, as I scroll through my feed, cause my feed is all, you know, now because of him, it's all soccer, European soccer clips, stand up comedy stuff and, and star Wars stuff. And I see you doing this show. I see you doing this show, Joe, by the way, I talked to Jenny, um, that we had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago yesterday to loop her in on something I'm doing next Thursday here in Lowell. And she said, Oh, bye. I said, yeah. Uh, when on that podcast that we had Jenny, I said, Oh, we're getting Steve. And I actually had Steve's business card. And she thought that was hysterical. When I was talking to her yesterday, she goes, I'm going to see Steve tonight. We're doing a gig together. I'm going to say hi. Right. Yes. You know, so, so you work, every weekend which is why it's been hard to schedule thank you for doing this super early on a saturday morning after what time did you get home last night one uh pretty close (laughs) you know but you got home at one sober which is different than (laughs) when i would come home from doing a show in in the 90s or something like that but that's the thing it's like do i don't know how old like the youngest are um because i know your routine has completely changed because the new curveball that you were throwing a few years ago with your health issue and, and now being a single dad, how that has changed. But I'm guessing how many shows do you think you, and the next 365 days, are you going to be doing one of these shows around new England? Do you think? Well, I, I work uh, at least three, three nights a week. Um, 
you know, certainly Friday, Saturday. And, um, and then I'm trying to, I try to carve out a night uh, during the week to work on new material. And then sometimes I'll get uh, something for a Thursday or Sunday. So at least three nights a week. And your new material, do you, has your process changed over the years, how you develop a joke? Yeah, I've, I've forgotten how to write jokes. <laughs> I, you know, I say that facetiously, but I've, I've been in a slump where I'm coming up with premises and I'm having trouble turning them into full-fledged jokes. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to battle my way through that. That's where AI comes in. You put in chat GPT, you say, here's a premise. Can you come up, you know, just put on a pot of coffee there, computer, and maybe come up with a punchline? That's cheating. Here, that's, here. Like, that's like taking Viagra. Well, <laughs> if, it, it, if it, I can't do it naturally, I don't want to do it. It's the performance-enhancing drugs of creative people. Here's here, here's my cheating, Steve. And I, I love that I have this resource, and I get so frustrated I have this resource. Nobody comes up with more and better premises than me. Um, however, they're not funny and they go nowhere. You're uh, an idea, man. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Feed the tuna Feed fish the mayo mayonnaise. To the tuna. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This still reminds you to shut Call Starkus. <laughs> Edible garbage. <laughs> and uh, Joe and I, every time my wife, she has to travel for work now and then, um, Joe comes over and we watch movies that we love. It's like three in the morning. We'll watch old episodes of game shows from the seventies or we'll watch movies. It's like, wait a minute. You've not seen that. We have to watch it. And, and, and night shift about a month ago, we, we, we just watch it. And Joe, your, your life is phenomenally better since then. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's I would it. say so. It's a, yeah. It's, so it's a new thing. what I have going for me Steve, and it's great and it's awful, is I have Joe. So I come up with premises. I send it to Joe, and I did this show at, at Greg Bogus's Mondo Theater a couple months ago. It was my first 15-minute set. And I'm going to say I came up with pretty okay stuff. The five or six biggest punchlines I got were all written by Joe. Like, like I, I will pitch something to Joe and he'll be like, yeah, that's okay. But it's funnier if you, and, and he'll just throw out a line or it's like, move this here, move this there. And I'm on the stage and I'm getting a laugh and I'm feeling good. But there's that voice in my head that's saying, it's all Joe. It's you're a fraud. It's yeah, it's not. It's, you know, it's sometimes you need the second voice. Um, like I, I will tell you a lot of times, you know, um, you go up on stage working on new material and your friends are watching and then you go back and you you all start contributing to each other's bits. Um, there's a like a lot of times the closest place to me to work out new material is a place called the Winter Circle in Salisbury. And um, Justin McKinney's there every week. Um, Mike McDonald is there quite a bit. Uh, so, you know, we'll do our we'll do our bits and then we'll take our notes back in the in the back of the room and we'll go through and you know uh and like i have this and this premise i'm working on and i haven't found i haven't found where it needs to go and how, how to finish it but um just it's about the idea of seeing an old fly like <laughs> you know in the winter you tend to see them and they're always by the kitchen window and they're, you know, they're really out of shape. They're not even quick anymore. Like you could probably do the Mr. Miyagi thing with the chopsticks with this guy. <laughs> and he's got a beer belly and a wife beater. And 
you know, the average lifespan of a housefly, I looked it up, is about three weeks. This guy's definitely working on three years. And I just wonder, you know, I mean, how does he feel about the younger generation of flies? You know, is he sitting around a pile of a dog mess with the, the, the younger generation going, you know, you're nothing but punks. I was the one who discovered the great sugar spill of last Thursday. <laughs> you guys read it about it in history. I was there when you were nothing but little maggots and, you know, just that kind of thing. And I'm working on where to go with it and you, how to finish it. And so you know forth. what sucks about being an old fly? If like, do old flies get suicidal? And if so, poor them because they can't even jump, you know, <laughs> there's, there's no escape. Anyway. I think that's why they're bashing their face into the window, uh, kitchen window. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> blunt force trauma for flies. Although, actually, I'm losing weight. At, uh, at this point, I'm down 40 pounds. Uh, I appreciate that. But two weeks ago, it was 50. So we got to get back on the stick. <laughs> I will tell I'll share this with you. I'll tell you what got me serious about losing the weight. Um, I actually got to the point where I wasn't my biggest. I was at the point where I couldn't wear my wedding ring anymore. Yeah, I gained weight uh, in my fingers. <laughs> I, I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> when I was thin, I had no idea that happened. I didn't, I didn't expect it. You know, like when I first started gaining weight, it was in the belly. I felt it in the, in the thighs. When did it start going to the fingers? Like, here's, the, I, I, here's the only thing I can fathom. I just assumed that one day I ate a cupcake and my bo body just panicked. <laughs> Holy shit, there's no room anywhere. Who sent it to the fingers? get the ring on I was all confused it's like wow my fingers are really out of shape a seven minute finger video or something and you know I hear people who struggle with weight I hear them all the time talk about problem areas yeah women do this particularly yeah usually it's the butt of the hips and the thighs apparently for me my fingers are a problem area Steve you want some cheesecake oh I'd love some but it goes right to my fingers thanks anyways it's hearing that you have that collaborative with like established people is great because over the pandemic, Joe and I, um, it was all self-serving. It's like I reached out to some incredibly funny people of mine around the country, some TV writers, some, and we were getting together once a week to punch stuff up. And even now, um, there's a little, there's a few scenes going on, like three rungs down, four rungs down eight rungs down from where you are uh there's a there's a stand-up scene in worcester that is different than the stand-up scene uh going in manchester that is different than boston that is different than lowell uh but lowell is really exploding but what's really nice is there's maybe 35 40 ish comics um and how supportive and how when somebody gets off they're like dude that was great um i loved it maybe say this or, or, Hey, what do you, and, and, and not like I'm better than you, which I can but it's, it, people are open to the ideas and uh, people are forthcoming with ideas. And, and there's one open mic um, that's held at one collaborative and uh, Lawrence on Mondays, and you can't come and do your set unless you're 
punching up the people before you. It's a really nice, it, well, you can, but it's like, it's before you get off the stage, you know, and it's like, it's, 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 it's great to hear that you have that too. And that it's great that established people are still rooting for each other. And it, it seems like it's not, Look, there's enough Prince of Peace gigs to go around that people aren't trying to not help the, the other guys in this community. It seems like a real community feel, whether you're at the open mics on a Monday night or you're doing these booked gigs together or, or the winter circle. I actually I've heard about that. I know a couple of kids who go out to that one. Um, so how has the scene changed over like the last 20, 30 years in Boston on the level that you're at? Well, all right. So I will say this, like when I started, you could, I could get stage time seven nights a week in front of real audiences. And it seems like what I'm seeing now, you guys are performing for each other as much as maybe three or four, maybe three or four civilians in the audience. And that's tough. I don't, I give you guys a lot of credit for, for getting through that. Like if I went up on at Nick's on a Monday night, Nick's at the time was a 350 seat room and it was filled every Monday. Um, Stitches on Sunday, same thing. And then there was a place called Dapper Dance on Tuesday. And then there was a comedy connection in Warrington Street. It wasn't open mic. You had to get, you had to get to a point where they would let you showcase. It wasn't paid gigs, but it was, you had to be at a certain level. Um, and here's what happens when you start out an open mic and you get yourself a group of your generation of open micers and you pal around, you hang out, um, at least when, for me, because I was in my you know, early 20s and so were all my friends. And we would, after the open mics, we'd go, which was in the theater district, and we'd either go to Dominic's, which was this, um, <laughs> this bar, which was uh, prostitutes, drug dealers and comedians. Um, or we go to Bennigan's or whatnot, but we would be together all the time. And then we got to the point where we were doing uh, opening spots and shows and we'd do those and then we'd all meet in Boston again. And, and it was really, it was a fantastic way to grow up. Um, people I grew up with was, uh, you know, Tom Cotter, Joe Rogan, um, Greg Fitzsimmons, um, Dane Cook, you know, all these, these great people um, and then the people that, you know, Todd Parker, Robbie Prince, these are names you probably haven't, maybe not have heard of, but they were fantastic and are still great. Um, Bill Burr. Um, anyway, then you start to go to middle spots, you start to get headlining spots. And when you get to headlining spots, then you really just don't see your friends as much anymore. So when you do see them, it's really a treat. But um, so you'd, you would be encouraging. And then there's almost, there's a sense between going from opening spot to middle spot where there is kind of a competition you know your buddy's getting a middle spot you're still doing opening spots or this other buddy is headlining an outside room and you're still doing opening spots so there is there's the there's the competition and if you take if you start comparing yourself to other people it's gonna it's not going to do you any good at all um you just follow your path don't don't get into the competitive spirit just keep following your path so there was definitely comp some competitive aspects, but then when you all get to a point where you're at, um, you know, it's just great to be a community and be friends. You know, it's, it is, it's nice to see that. And like I said, I, 
eight months ago when I was doing starting to do this uh, almost like full time. Uh, the only mics I had to drive out to Worcester a couple days a week, and over the last six seven months, a, a couple mics started to pop up in Lowell and, and and up in Manchester, and now there's three or four mics a week. There's also a couple places that have monthly things, and as you said, a couple of those actually have civilians there, which is night and day difference. Um, there's a there's a group on ULOL that is now booking, you know, you know some shows, uh, and also a couple other places are starting to do booked shows with more civilians and comics, which is nice, and it is. It's great to see. I'm really, I I'm I'm adjacent to that clique or that clan or that group but i'm 25 30 years older than right. everybody else and 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 they are so what i love about this group especially in lowell more than more than worcester more than manchester and and even more than more than the boston groups um there's a great mic at water in watertown and and, and jacques not my club but the the club downtown but in lowell the number of comics going up in the LGBTIA plus community, the the number of women, the the you know the people of color who are going and you know running a lot of these mics, and it's great. They're really they're really great because, but it's hysterical because I'm uh, one kid. He's a, he's on the much younger side. Brought his dad a couple weeks ago, and I thought, man, it's great that his dad is supporting him. Six years younger than me. <laughs> And uh, where where I don't drink and I don't get high and I don't feel like anybody needing to know how small my penis is, my routine is more about uh, akin to a lot of your stuff. You know, be married for 20 years with two kids who are 10 times smarter than I'll ever be and they never miss an opportunity to tell me, you know, type jokes. Uh, And it's funny because it's tough. You know, I'm at the finding the voice, finding the cadence stage. And then the first time that Greg Bogus put me up at a Mondo show and, and, you know, the only people there, I didn't, I didn't, I'm going to invite 20 friends. So that first real show, I get the last from my friends. I only invited Joe um, just to make sure if I did do a good show, he could remind me that all the funny stuff was from him and not because he would ever say that, but just being there. Uh, my sister who loves comedy. And my wife and I would never bring my wife to these open mics. And it's really funny because it was all civilians. There were 60, 70 people there. And later, you know, Joe says to me, he goes, that weird sound you heard, that was called laughter because <laughs> I'm talking to people who are 40 with kids. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm divorced myself from like 20 years ago. It's people who get that kind of stuff. So when I see you at these shows, it's mostly at shows where people really can relate to you but growing up and coming up it must have just been vastly yeah. different oh yeah like for yeah i started with my early 20s so all of my material was about uh drinking um uh, you know, dating college <laughs> college high school that's what the material was about that's not something I, that's not stuff i can pull off or want to pull off anymore like I, I don't know if it was before we started recording, but you're talking about Elks Halls and KFC, K, the Knights of Columbus, and so forth. I got to tell you, those shows are absolutely. You know, people talk about, oh, you know, I'm just gonna, you, you, you didn't go anywhere. You just do Elks Hall, uh, Elks Lodges, and I got to tell you, those shows are so much fun because it's my wheelhouse now. They're, they're my age group, and people love to go to those shows. It's usually a fundraiser. They bring their own food. 
you know, at the table. They pack the place. It's usually two, you know, yeah. two, two or three hundred people. And they're there for a night out. They got a babysitter. Um, they're there for, to laugh. And it's it's absolutely fantastic. Those are, la- those are those are fun shows. The last show I saw you with, it was you and um and and and, and is oh um I'm I'm just awful with names, uh Brian. Joe. I'm oh Joe. Okay, <laughs> Joe and Brian. Um, you you Steve, you were with Christina Hurley, uh-huh. and, and no one left. Like like you and Christine and Hurley get off the stage, people were just crying, crying, laughing. Nobody left. It it was like, it was like before before I went to real college. I, two years after high school, I played minor league hockey, and I went. My mom's like, you either got to get a part time job or go to school. And works a four letter word for me. So I went to Northern Essex Community College, and it sucked because there was all use an old fuck who was in this journalism class with a bunch of 19 year olds they're 63 and the professor's wrapping class up everything's done we got 15 minutes or and those sons of bitches want it they paid for the 90 minutes they ain't leaving they will make up questions and that's what these shows that i've seen you at the people are finding reasons the comedian's done the food's gone the bar shut off but they're not going home. They want to mingle. They want to talk to you. Even when I saw you at Luna, the line of people to chat with you, the show's over and you didn't get out of mill number five for a good 40 minutes after the show. Uh, you get off stage, Greg says goodnight to everybody, and you were in the lobby talking for 40 minutes. You know what? I love that. I absolutely love that because the, that means I connected. There's, right. and here's, you want to talk about the minutia of comedy. There are nights when, look, certainly I have not done well. There are other nights when I've done the job, which means everybody in the audience was happy. The booking agent was happy. Um, everyone thought it was a great show, but I know it wasn't. I did my job, but that's all I did. But the next level is when you absolutely connect. When you feel a connection between you and every person in that room, and you know that whatever you say is going to be right like they're going to just go with you no matter what direction you go in there's nothing in the world like that feeling like i've heard a lot of people say there's nothing like making people laugh that's true to a point but making them laugh with a connection is a hundred percent different i'll give you like a when i was um i never did material about my kids uh for several years after we uh, fostered and adopted them because i didn't want to explore i didn't want to feel like I was exploiting them. I was working at the Borgata with this guy from New Orleans and I was telling him the story. We were having breakfast one day and I was telling him the story. He's like, why aren't you doing that on stage? I go, oh, you know, I don't know if I found the funny of it yet. And uh, I don't, you know, really want to, and because these people want to know about that stuff. Your audience wants to know the details about your life, they want it to be funny, but they want to be able to connect with you. And that really was a turning point. Like before that, all I was thinking about was a funny bit. But ever since then, uh, like I never, in, before that, I never would have wrote that bit about uh, uh, the medical problem I had with my eyes. I just didn't think that that's where the audience wanted. But I found that, that is, that's what they want more than the funny supermarket bit I do. Um, they wait like, that that that's a great bit the candy bar the candy bar oh it's it is i I'm, I'm proud of the writing on that bit 
and it makes people laugh and makes them laugh hard. In fact, I'll tell you, I, I kind of tried to retire that because I've been doing it for a while. That's, uh, I use that as a test routine because it's pretty much bulletproof. So if I'm having, if I'm struggling, I'll, I'll stick that in there. And if it doesn't bring the crowd back, then I know there's not much I can do. <laughs> that, right. was, no. that was bulletproof. Uh, anyway, so that is something that I think is really important. I think you have to find your voice and your persona on stage and make sure it's re- your, uh, uh, you're being sincere as, as to who you are on stage before you really start to do that. But it is it's so much about connecting. The greatest compliment I ever get is when somebody says after the show, it just felt like you were talking to us in our living room. Yeah. And that, that, that means there's a connection. Uh, it's so Joe and I, Joe was helping me just before I did a bunch of military tours just before the pandemic. And I was booked to do six starting in March of 2020 with a absolute gigantic film producer who's mentored me. And it's one of those most one-sided relationship i've gotten so much there's nothing i can do to help this guy's career i mean he did the hangover he did the batman movies and yet he chose and we were supposed to do movie nights and and somebody from armed forces entertainment said it's like these shows are great we can't wait to do them but we need more we need more interaction uh we need you to do audience warm-up and moderate and i'm like i i haven't done it so joe and i started working on it i i had some what i thought was good stuff i Almost a year, Joe and I, a couple times a week, a few hours working on stuff that I would, Joe would give me notes. I would work on it. We were, I finally, after a year, did it in front of my wife. Like, she's like, hey, let me, and she, she had a notebook and she, she's incredibly funny. And she was checking off this. She was making notes. And then at the end, she's like, you didn't mention me or, or her mom and her, we, her mom. And now I do. I talk about it all the time. Her, I didn't get to meet her dad, but her dad was from um, Everett, humble brag, and he worked around the world. He met his mom. He met my wife's mom working in Seoul, Korea, and she learned English from him. So she had the most stereotypical broken Asian English with a thick Boston accent. And, you know, we moved back home to take care of her and it was a challenging couple of years, but it was wonderful. And my wife's like, how, how is this not part of it? Like when my mom did this, when this happened, you know, her boyfriend of 30 years, who was part of the deal when she moved in, who spoke zero English, it's like, how, how is Mr. Kim not in these bits? Like all the good and awful. And I'm like, I didn't, I didn't know. Are you okay with that? And she was not only okay with that, she was kind of like hurt. She's like, your life is a sitcom, a good or bad sitcom, you know? And so when you relate, like the stuff that I relate most to with you is the dad stuff. You know, it it is all that. Uh, And it's funny because we've talked to a lot of comics uh, on the podcast. We had Jim Colton on uh, a couple months ago, and he's amazing. We were talking about like, you know, Mike Donovan, who I just saw at a Greg's show. The guy's 71. His first headlining thing was 1971. Uh, no, so he's like 73, but and the but and it's amazing. Uh, so I ended up getting his book as well that night. Listening to people like you, like Jim, uh, again, 
Uh, Donovan worked mostly clean. He actually told one joke that he said, this is a joke that got me fired from, you know, I'm not going to mention the cruise line, but they are royal pain in the ass <laughs> um, uh, uh, and, and Bernie joke. But it, it is. It's, 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 I love talking about the process and, and how it's changed with you. And I'm glad that that person in New Orleans said, dude, you got to include this. Because when you opened up about your medical stuff, how many people in the room I saw you with when you did are going through in a similar thing? So not only is it funny, they have something, they, they really feel that connection on a different level. Yeah, well, that and that's what forms connection is, uh, you know, commonality. So, have yeah. your kids seen you perform? So, as I mentioned when I was talking to this guy in New Orleans, um, I was worried about ex- being exploitative with my kids because they are, you know, their their beginning was was rough. It was tough. So, he said, he goes, "You're going to do it tonight, or I'm not letting you off the stage." So I did it in front of 900 people at the Borgata, the first version of it, and it went fine. Uh, and then I, you know, honed it from there. But um, I was, every time I did it, I was feeling like, is this okay with my kids? Is this, you know, so New, New Year's Eve, a couple of years ago, I was working close to home. I was in Andover. It was at the Doubletree um, Hotel. They gave me a room for the night. So I figured, you know what, we're going to make this a fun New Year's Eve for the kids. So we went, we checked in, um, did the hot tub, the indoor pool, and then we you know, went to the show. They stayed outside until it was my turn to go on because the other comedians, you know, wasn't necessarily appropriate for little kids. So when they introduced me, they brought the kids in the room. They heard it. They heard everything from start to finish. After the show, I was like, you know, what do you guys think about that? And they're like, yeah, it's fine. It's funny. We're okay with it. So I got their seal of approval. Um, by the way, you ask if they've seen me and if they're impressed. Their favorite part of that trip was the hot tub. Um, <laughs> this is one thing about kids. They are not impressed. Dad is just dad, you know, and that's his, he goes up and tells jokes. That's his job. They're not impressed. Their friends are. Like, but right. they're, they're not impressed. You know, a way to um, impress them is to buy a hot tub. Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. But so now that was that was a couple of years ago. They are all now, um, they're all teenagers now. So I don't know. I think even if they said it would be okay, I'm not sure if they're not, if their feelings aren't a little conf- conflicted. So I really kind of, I don't, I don't include the beginning of the process anymore. Um, when I do my, when I do my routine, just, just to play it safe on their, on, the, on their so behalf. A, a legit dad comedy question. When you did your bit about them getting ready in the morning and they saw that, did it help the process going forward or did it hinder it? That, no difference. No <laughs> difference whatsoever. It didn't, uh, it, it didn't affect them at all. Uh, so but, and, and actually, if anything, I think it emboldened them. Because <laughs> what they what they saw was the audience connecting and recognizing. So, like, I guess we're good. I guess we're just like every other kid in the world. Great, you're halfway there. You're naked. Yeah. <laughs> you know that that line kills me. No, because uh, so we my boys grew up in L.A. Before we, before my wife got this insane job that moved us to the Middle East, and we still kind of consider LA home up until this summer. We spent all the summers back. Oh, the one co- one COVID summer we didn't. 
And it's funny because because of what I do, it's the boys didn't realize the boys didn't realize how many really stupid famous people they knew or houses they've been over or just not like acquaintances, but real, real friends. And uh, I'm, you know, I know it might come across bias and it's truly not bias. It, this is just fact. It might come across bias, uh, but my boys were the most beautiful devastatingly handsome wonderful charming children who've ever graced the the this this earth um and i had so many friends say do they want to do this hey do you want to come and do this and we kept them at an arm's length away uh i did a movie in 2016 i had to go to jackson mississippi for six weeks there was one tiny scene where seven or eight year old is dragged by his mom angrily from point a to point b maybe 20 yards and the kids yelling this isn't my mom. This is my mom. And when my mom saw it about two years later, she's like, why didn't you have one of the boys do that? And I told her, I said, that kid's called. We shot that on, on a school day. So that kid missed the day of school to show up for a 2 PM call time. That scene was shot at 10 PM at night. Six months later, during the editing process, his voice was annoying and they actually ADR'd it. So that kid, right. And I'm like, mom, am I really going to fly squish down for this? And because, you know, I, I'm, I'm a producer on it. It's like, yeah, he's going to have this and, you know, whatever. But he's still going to have to sit there for 10, 12 hours to do his one thing five or six times only to be cut out only to be this so i we've really worked on on keeping the kids an arm's length away they gravitated towards theater when they got here they're not sports kids and about two months ago my son and i he's 15 we went to new york to visit somebody just for the day and we wrapped up at like 4 30 and i said hey there's an open mic i want to go hit I said, if we leave now, and he gets it, we travel a lot. I said, if we drive home now, because of New York traffic, it will take us seven hours to get home. If we leave at 8, 8.30, we'll be home in four hours. Right. So I walked into the place, and uh, and he's he's 15. He's almost 16. Um, he's 5'8", 180. It's all shoulders. He doesn't like sports, but he's done jiu-jitsu so she can walk. I'm like, I'm gonna, we're going to go. I'm going to sign up. Then I'm going to dump you at a restaurant because there's plenty of places. It was in the village. I said, I'm going to, and I'll be back in an hour, hour and a half. When we walked in, either the guy, because of the dim light or didn't give a crap, said, Oh, you guys both comics? I'm like, Yeah. He goes, You guys want a beer? And, I'm like, and I look at him, I'm like, Shut up, just sit down. And 10, 15 people come in over the next half hour, the MC, and he's like, Are you going up to him? And he's like, He looks at me, I said, Go up. And so he goes, You know, and so he has a half hour, 45 minutes to think about it. And now he's done it a few times. And it's, it, and, and I, I'm, and I don't know how you are, if you're interested in your kids doing it, I'm supportive, but I'm not at all. Do you, you, let's hear the new jokes. Hey, there's a mic doing this. I'm like, if you want to do it, do it. If you don't, where do you weigh in on your kids following in this footsteps? Well, I would, <laughs> I would, um, I would not be interested in them necessarily following in my footsteps. Uh, <laughs> if they wanted to go into showbiz, that's fine. But I have no interest in pushing them in any direction. I think as a dad, you have to, you go to your kid. You don't expect them to go to you. Um, so whatever they're into is what they're into. Like one of my youngest daughter, 
she's showing a lot of interest in performance. And that's fine. That's great. She was in a play recently. She does an improv uh, improv group that is part of the school after school on Thursdays. And, you know, I think it's wonderful. Have fun with it. But I, I'm certainly not pushing anybody into anything. And performance is very, that's a very odd thing. It's so inherently narcissistic. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I like to think that I'm not ego driven. I'd like to think I'm not narcissistic, but I do go up on stage three nights a week and seek approval of strangers. So, you know, it's part of it. It's got to be. Right. It has to be. Are any of your kids funny? Is your house a, a, like a laughter house? <laughs> uh, I wouldn't necessarily say that on a regular basis, especially during these years. Um, yeah, I mean, it certainly has been over the years, and it and it is uh, from time to time. But um, I mean, it's a regular house, you know. I got to be look. I can't be. I can't be the best friend. I have to be the father. And it's wonderful on those occasions when you can be both, but your first priority is going to be father. That, that's the discussion I've had with the oldest one a number of times. And it's like, there were just some times when I'm like, you're going to have a thousand friends. You're going to have one me. And, and, and you probably have the same thing. Most people, most of my friends from high school, from college, people I work with, everybody outside my house thinks I'm one of the funniest people they know. Not here. <laughs> like, like this is the toughest ground. I have them on a regular basis telling me how unfunny I am. But yeah, I, 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 I you know, and it's funny because my son and one of his stand up things has mentioned that how how it almost scares him how we could be having a really serious moment. I'll get a work call and like just that switch where I'm like, like I, I have to change tonality. And he's like, wait, that's this is all of a sudden this different person. This is a Jekyll and Hyde. And, and then as soon as I hang up the phone, it's back to, okay, so why didn't you get this work in? <laughs> you know, you told me you did two weeks ago uh, because un unlike when we grew up, uh, because all their work is online, I can tell my mom, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then when the report card comes, maybe it made it in the mail. Maybe it didn't. She was a single mom with three kids. But now I can go online and say, dude, you say you turn this in. There's no right, check. There's, mark. No, there's no hiding anymore. Right. And so we have we those. Had, me and my parents had a very, very good system. I'd come home from school. Um, they'd say, do your homework. And I'd say, okay. Um, after dinner, they say, did you do your homework? And say, yes. Uh, I think we both knew I didn't, but <laughs> you know, that was our system and it worked. <laughs> and you went on to college. So I guess, and you, you know, you've taken care of yourself. Like well, you graduated college about eight years ago. So you, you're doing fine, <laughs> you know? Um, so where can people, well, first of all, let's talk about your book. How is the process of writing a book different than getting an hour or half hour stand-up routine together? For my particular book, that not at all different because my this book is, as you know, a collection of short stories, essays, uh, two tales from the road, and in a way, I kind of cheated because for uh, a couple of years I was doing just just as something to do and just to um, keep my creative juices going. I was doing a column in the weekly newspaper in Wilmington, you know it, I'm sure the town, town crier. crier. <laughs> so I was doing a weekly column. And so 
you know, I had a couple hundred of those that were just sitting in the files. And then it, uh, I became aware of how easy it was to self-publish on Amazon. So I decided to compile them. Uh, I rewrote a lot of them, but compiled them, sent it into Amazon, self-published a book, wrote, wrote the intro um, or the forward, and then um, sent it into Amazon. So really, it's amazing how many hours it took just to edit, put it together, and, and take care of it. But uh, really, it's not like I sat down and wrote a book. I, I'd love to make that claim someday, but I haven't done that yet. This was over a series of years. And do you, do you sell the book at your shows? Do you bring copies of it and do signings and stuff like that? I was really good about doing that for quite a while. Um, I, I'm really kind of lazy now about bringing the book which is ridiculous because they do sell. I, I average probably six or 10 books every show, every time I sell them. Um, but so when I remember, I bring the book. <laughs> no, because I, you know, again, you know, when I saw Donovan just last week, it was interesting. He's written three Russian history books and a comedy book, and I bought the comedy book. I'm not really interested in Russian history at the moment. But, Those are uh, hysterical, though. You know, <laughs> You when know. you think comedy, you think yeah, Russian. you think Russian history. Yeah, yeah. the Bolshevik. Um, come on, man. you know, um, you know, it's funny though. Back in the '90s, when we were both single, I used to hang out with Donovan all the time. We'd go and go to his uh, his apartment, and you'd walk in, and there were history books from floor to ceiling, covering every part of the wall. And then I remember he said, "You want some coffee?" I go, "Yeah." He goes, so he goes into his kitchen cabinet, opens the cabinet. There's a coffee can and stuffed and there are books stuffed in the cabinets all in the cabinets i've never seen anybody with a library like he has and he's got his his mind is it's like a steel trap it's amazing what he's able to retain um so we talked back then about his interest in russian history russian politics and he was talking about how he's going to write a book and he's now He's not only written three Russian books of Russian history, he's written a number of books on American history. I actually edited his first book, the first book that he um, that he put out, 101 Stories for American History, I think is, was what it was called. Um, but yeah, so he's just, he's such a fascinating guy and one of the funniest peoples in, people in the world. Um, two questions. Because of the age gap, I'm guessing he was sort of a mentor. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, so we, like, we kind of hit it off. We were booked on a show and we kind of hit it off. So he had the gravitas when he was booked on a show, he'd get to pick his, you know, middle or open or whatever. So a lot of times he'd pick me and we, you know, but, and then the nights off, we'd end up hanging out too. And have you ever seen somebody who is so, is methodical the right word of how he approaches? Like, there's no improvisation. He knows every syllable he's going to say and how he's going to say it. I honestly, when I saw him last week, and I and I said again, I'm mentioning him a lot because you know Greg Bogus runs the best show, you know, outside of Boston, his monthly show, and just going back over his set and how he he transitioned from one to the other, just absolutely everything was connected everything was seamless and there wasn't one syllable that was wasted well yeah you actually just took the words out of my mouth what i was going to say about donovan is there's n not not a single breath is wasted um 
there is meaning behind every uh, every fragment of speech. Uh, it is it is it's a masterclass in doing stand up comedy. I mean, his mic work, right? Just and that's so subtle. You have to look for it. But that is that's one of the things that puts him on a level above just about anybody else I can think of, which is where the mic is for each syllable of each joke. If you watch it next time you watch him, watch nothing but the mic and you'll see how effective it is and how important it is to his success. It was almost at one point, almost I don't want to say prop comic but the way he's doing this thing where he's hanging off the cliff and the way he's dangling the mic and stuff like and like you said like he's having a conversation between the guy hanging off the cliff and the guy on the other side and how the mic is going back almost like a magician because you can't see him he's doing the and i'm watching every bit of it thinking wow that is that 1971 i'm two years old the first time he headlines you know in boston and it's just we are we are absolutely spoiled with the amount of comic talent because when you were talking in in 87 you're working the door out in milford mass that's the year i graduated high school and like you said nicks was full because a buddy of mine it was 18 plus at the time yeah they didn't give a shit if you showed up at nicks and you had you you know your your goalie from your hockey team and your girlfriends and the four of you are coming in to see nicks and nicks on a monday night or a tuesday night no no names just packed you know yep. and just but then you would see like my my wife has like uh is it a self-made dvd or cd a self-burnt cd on a home thing by dane cook that she saw early 90s mm-hmm. like when he like with you bringing your book to the show he would do it he'd get off stage he'd sell five or six copies you know and then like four five five six years later he becomes Dan Cook, you know, right. but he, he was just another run of the mill, one of six really funny people. He might have been the funniest guy that night, but there was probably five other funny people going up at Prince of I'll, Pizza that night. I'll tell you something about Dane. Dane, um, he's a good guy. And he's taken uh, like he's a lot of people use him like as a, a punching bag for his material. He's a good guy. And he's one of the only, we talked about how when you get it, the first time you get on stage and you don't know who you are and it might go okay, hopefully it goes okay. He's the one in the, the uh, what, three decades I've been doing this. He's the one person I can say that knew who he was and what he was doing the first time he got on that stage. It, from day one, he was Dane Cook and he took the room by the horns every time he got on that stage and I got it I get it like first of all he's always been good to me he's a good guy so he's got that going for him but I got to give him props for the fact that from day one he grabbed the audience and he kept them the entire time he was on the stage every time from day one there was uh the white I met my wife in 2007 2004 she lived here and she was she second time she comes to LA I surprise her by picking her up at, at uh, LAX and we're driving right to Vegas, you know, uh, and she, whatever CD he had that came out in 2004, she had with her. We're maybe halfway through the drive. We, we are, um, we're, we're right between nowhere and we're fucking lost in the day. I actually pulled the car over 
because I was crying. I was absolutely crying. And to this day, if, you know, just those little sides where I'll make, I'll make the mistake around my wife of saying, so back in the day, she'll be like, oh, on Wednesday, because that's one, it's an aside that he throws out, like back in the day. When they say back in the day, so I've always loved him. I, I've never known where that Dane Cook you know, and he's always been a good sport about it because, again, yeah. another canceled guy, Louis C.K., the best episode of his show, Louis, was when Dane Cook was on. Um, and, and there was that whole controversy for two years that Dane Cook stole three of Louis C.K. jokes. And Dane played an over – if you know the episode, he played an over-exaggerated – do you remember this, Joe? Yeah, I remember the episode. Yeah, Dane – the thing with Dane was, like, good-looking guy. He got his, it was prominent on the internet first. And I think a lot of other comics saw resentment in that or were resentful toward him because it's like, well, who's this guy coming out of nowhere that's all of a sudden, you know, taking the world by storm? And he was, his rise was meteoric and, you know, he was in movies and all over the place. So, yeah, I could see why other comics would use him as a punching bag, you know, to take out their own frustrations, really. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, and you know what? If he's got he's got a like a billion dollars in the bank, he can take a few shots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he, he 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 has fuck you money. I, th- I think that's yeah. it. Looking up the term. Yep, that is the appropriate term. He has f u money. Uh, so so Steve, where can people follow you? Are are you prevalent on any of the socials? Are you active um, online? Do you, do you, do you engage or have any kind of thing where people can see what's going on? So here's where my dinosaur status comes out. I don't really get into Instagram very much. I don't. Um, I don't. I don't get it. Uh, like the, it's confusing me. It's not as intuitive as like Facebook. And maybe it's because of my age, but most of my fans are on Facebook anyway. So I do post almost every everything that's public. I post on Facebook, um, which is Stephen Bjork with a ph. At Facebook, you know, on Facebook, I have an Instagram account. I share things that other people post about me. Um, but if you want to know where I am, go to Facebook. Uh, you can also go to my website, which is stevebjork.com. However, I have not updated that calendar because I'm lazy. Um, but at some point, I got to get. That. I will. I will get to that and get and keep it going. Um, so those are, you know, Instagram, Facebook, primarily and my website and are the is there a club that people because i know there's so many of those fundraisers and private events you know again at the elks at the different you know function halls and stuff but where primarily can somebody who doesn't know that the woburn shriers are having you know the wilmington shiners are having a, a night where they can come see you do you have like a place where monthly you're here or or well, every now and then you're there Generally, you know, the audiences tend to go to the same clubs, so you're not going to be at any club monthly, Uh, but um, China Blossom, I'll be actually next week, that's North Andover. Um, I will, you know, I'm at the Rex Theater in Manchester on a fairly regular basis. Um, I haven't done giggles in a while on Route 1, but uh, I would would say this, if you want to see me somewhere, call the place and request me. Okay, yeah. Because that always that as a comic that always helps. Yeah, and are you your own agent? Yeah, I mean I work with booking agents, but I don't have one person that uh, you know does all of my 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 booking. I work with a number of booking agents. 
That's great. Uh, Steve, again, Joe, I, I've yapped so much. I know, which is weird because I'm usually a mouse on the, on this podcast. You got any, uh, you got any yeah, last You've been thoughts? very quiet so far. <laughs> um, no, I think it, uh, I'm glad to, uh, Steve was able to carve out some time on a Saturday morning to come talk to you know us two schmucks. Um, I'm glad that you eventually got his last name correct. Shut uh, up. <laughs> this like, is, this is a lot of fun. I'm glad I finally gave. I'm finally we were able, finally able to put this together because this was a lot of fun. Yeah. No, and and and, and I am. Uh, you know, I'm a fan. Um, Joe's a fan. My sister, you know, she might she might be the president of your fan club. Ah, uh, I you know I don't know. Did you? She's she's now over at the. Oh God, God I'm awful. North. Reading library but you know it's oh, funny okay. but she yeah she's she's the you know she she, she my sister's now spongebob it, it took her to be 50 before she took the dream job that she's always wanted that she's meant to do and when i say spongebob the thing i love about spongebob his his co-workers an a-hole his boss is an a-hole uh most of the customers are a-holes but that guy can't wait to get up and go to work he, he, loves- he and she, she loves, loves flipping those patties. He does. And what, look, if that's and so she does. She's a, she's a children's librarian over there. She's a rock star. They love her. But I think she she she, she was in the Wilmington Library. And did you yeah. ever do an, an event over there? I think that's I, where you might have first come into her orbit. Maybe I did do um, a night there one time where they kind of you know pushed all the shelves back. And they pack, they packed the room. Um, and that was a ton of fun. That's got to be, is that 10 years ago? It might've been six to 10 years ago. And, uh, and, and so like, I said, she's been a fan ever since. So she and I will, will come catch you, you know, one time over the next month, Joe and I will come catch you, uh, you know, one time over the next like month or so. And honestly, it's just been absolutely great to pick your brain, to hear the story selfishly because i'm doing this now there's nothing i love more than talking to funny people about the funny process and about you know where it is and where it's going and so again thank you for carving out the time for sharing what you have and uh and everything in between it was a lot of fun thank you guys and sorry about the um Flintstones gig, you know, it would have been really nice to have seen you opposite uh, Alan Cummings as Gazoo, uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm sure those checks would still be rolling in today. So. Well, you know, just to finish that that story real quick, it's like a story that civilians really enjoy. But the truth is, it was just an audition. You know, that no, doesn't mean I was ever going to get the part, which is one of the reasons why I didn't I didn't do it. It was still chasing. You know, it was. Mm-hmm. Could have never happened. Anyway. Yeah. Well, in, in our hearts, you would have been perfect. <laughs> Maybe you could play Jacques in the Jacques Lambert story. Because <laughs> you do kind of bear a striking resemblance to each other. Same hairline. Uh, okay. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. Thanks. Thank you, guys. All of them go to school now. They all have to get up early in the morning, get ready, catch a bus, three different buses, three different times, pretty much right on top of each other. Now, I don't know if anybody here has raised multiple children. Anybody? Yeah, a few of you. How many? Two. That's not multiple, my friend. That's an only child with a spare. But if you have, if you got three, four, five, anybody got like a whole bunch, a whole crew? No, you're all smarter than me. I'm telling you, it is, it is chaos. It's mayhem. It is 
Like every morning in my house is like the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan. Because right? it's all about keeping them focused, keeping them on task. And every morning, every one of my kids wakes up with a brand new social emotional disorder that no one's ever heard of. And I'm an optimist. Another word for that is stupid. Because every morning I wake up, I'm like, you know what, honey? This is going to be great. They're going to pull it together today. This is going to go great. Carrie, you wanted eggs. Mom got up early, made you some eggs. Here you go, sweetheart. Honey, come to the table. Honey, stop playing with the cat. It's time to get, come on. Time for breakfast. No, I don't care. Leave the cat alone. Come here. girl. sit down. All right, I want you to eat your eggs. I'm coming back to check on you. Make me proud. Blake, you've been looking in the mirror for a long time. You are very handsome. But it's time to brush your teeth. There's your toothbrush. There's your toothpaste. Please get this done. Bus is coming soon. I believe in you. <laughs> Cheyenne, you've got to get out of bed. I don't want to tell you again. Please don't make me come back in here. Please get out of the bed. <laughs> Isaiah, you've been in your room for 10 minutes. You've done nothing. You're still in your pajamas. Please, you've got to take your pajamas off. Put your clean clothes on. Look, Mom, put your clean clothes here. You don't have to think about it. Just, just put them on. It's all done for you. Just do that. Please, get this done. Bus is coming soon. <sighs> Carrie, huh? Carrie? <laughs> Carrie, wait, get back to, I, I, don't, I don't care what the cat's doing. Sit down. You haven't taken a bite. You haven't taken a single bite. Forget about the cat. Eat your food. Bus is coming soon. Please get this done. Blake, the cap is still in the toothpaste. Why is the cap still in the toothpaste? <laughs> your bus comes first. Your bus is gonna be here in like two minutes. You gotta get this done. I'm begging you, just brush your teeth. <laughs> Say it, get on that <laughs> Isaiah, you're halfway there. You're naked. That's great. But listen, this is not a good time to be playing with your Legos. No. Gotta get... Oh, no, no, don't sit down there. That's a bad idea. I don't want to go to the emergency room first thing in the morning. Listen, put your clothes on. I can't send you to school like this. They'll take you away. Put your clothes on. Carrie. Daddy will buy you a pony if you eat these eggs. Just put some on your fork, put it in your mouth, chew it, swallow it, repeat that process. Pony. How do you lose a toothbrush in five seconds? It was in your hand, I saw it in your hand. You know what, I don't care anymore. Put toothpaste in your finger and rub your teeth. I don't care. <laughs> That's what my life has come to. <laughs> At least four mornings a week, I'm screaming, why are you still naked? <laughs> I never thought that, I mean, I kind of hope, but not to a child.
Chuck.